Good evening and welcome to the Review Squared on Blaze Radio and BlazeRadioOnline.com, live from the Bill Austin Radio Studio in downtown Phoenix. We're sure there's no one you'd rather be listening to. No, absolutely not. If you're not here, you're a loser. Uh, <laughs> I, I hate to just uh, tell it. I, Telling I regret it like it is. Yeah, no, you can't accuse me of not being honest. Very true. Yeah. But if you are here listening, you're actually very cool. Exactly. And, yep, it's a little after 7 on a Friday, and we're back here as always. I'm glad to be back. Holy crap. It's feels like it's been forever. I just missed one show, and it feels like I haven't been doing this for years. <laughs> Aw, we missed you last week. Even if we had some really interesting stories, uh, it was very different not having you here. And if you weren't able to make it last week, where can they find last week's episode usually? On wherever you get podcasts. It will be up. It's not up as of the time of the broadcast, but it will be up soon. And then even better than usual, you'll have two brand new episodes of The Review Squared to listen to, just in case you missed us. Exactly. So anyways, we got to get right into it because of, uh, you know, time's only is finite and not unlimited. Boo, tomato, tomato, tomato. Truly, Kirsten. I'm Gideon Karayuki. I'm John Brown. I'm Kirsten Dorman. And I'm Haley Smilo. And we're missing Ethan Pellin this week, who we do miss him dearly, and we hope he'll be back next week. Yes, our Ukraine-Russia conflict-explaining king. Truly. So anyways, as usual, I'll start out uh, the show. This week, let's talk a bit about housing in Arizona. In the past week alone, these headlines that I'm going to read have been on azfamily.com. Six Arizona cities rank top 20 in highest rent hikes report. By the way, the figure in the city of Phoenix alone was about 28% in one year. Uh, I don't think wages went up by 28%, just saying. Um, so anyways, more headlines. Valley families on Section 8 housing struggle as evictions rent prices rise. And finally, Police, firefighters, and teachers getting priced out of Arizona housing market. Don't we kind of need those? Yes. Kind of important. Anyways, this is a crisis of massive proportions, as you can tell by these headlines. Alone. No longer is the Valley home to affordable housing. It's only affordable if California is what you're comparing it to. The rent is too damn high and the wage is too low. The Valley is now home to housing prices setting new records all the time, and it only looks like it's slowing from unbelievably rapid growth to merely quite fast growth. The effects of this are obvious. Higher rent, higher prices to buy homes, more money spent on housing, increased homelessness. That said, for once, the state legislature has a bipartisan proposal to tackle this, and that is what I'm going to focus on tonight. State Representative Steve Kaiser, a Republican, and Cesar Chavez, a Democrat, both from Phoenix, introduced House Bill 2674, which is intended to alleviate the state's housing shortage through reforms to zoning law and more funding from the, for the state housing trust, according to the Arizona Republic. Now, this is actually a rare example of me going ahead and reading this bill myself so you didn't have to. So here's the summary uh, from me. Uh, the, of the main provisions. The bill would require municipalities to ensure a sufficient supply of housing within their borders, preempts any and all municipal regulations on zoning more restrictive than state regulations, enacts by right, as in by right of law, like you own the property, you can do this hmm. uh, without, you know, the state or any local government coming in and saying no. It enacts by right zoning, allowing eight dwellings an acre in all single family zoned areas and agricultural areas in municipalities, or 12 duplexes an acre in the zoned areas. Enacts by right zoning in multifamily zoned areas and agriculture areas, allowing a height limit of 55 feet in most areas, and 75 feet in areas that are within a half mile of a light rail stop, bus stop, freeway, or major arterial roadway. And mandates the density limit for multifamily zoned areas be the greatest allowed for a mixed use within a Mixed or use or residential use within a mile of development. Bans municipalities from requiring general plan amendments, use permits, or commission review for housing allowed by right under the law. Requires 30-day reviews of housing construction applications. 
15 days for any corrections to be processed after that, and approval of any and all housing applications within 90 days. Bans design review restrictions outside of historical districts and individual landmarks. Ban stricter energy conservation requirements than under the most recent model code. And finally, finally, appropriates $89 million of state money to the state housing trust to fund more affordable housing units. Now that is a lot. Uh, that, those are all the main provisions of the bill. And they passed it? No, 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 or no, they no. they proposed it, This is to a be proposal. Clear. This is a proposal. Okay. I, yeah. What are its odds looking like? We'll get to that in a second, I promise. Sorry, I'm so curious. <laughs> um, anyways, that is a lot, and it would be a game changer in state zoning in Arizona. Like any other massive change, it has brought massive resistance with it. Uh, with leaderships of uh, towns and cities across the state not happy with the straight-up seizure of local control of zoning that this bill would in fact enact. The League of Arizona Cities and Towns Deputy Director Renee Golian told the Republic, quote, This bill would represent the most aggressive and restrictive preemptions in the country should it pass, end quote. Which, yeah, I think he's right on that uh, from everything I've seen. Not surprisingly, the Arizona Multifamily Association as in the apartment landlord lobby, is in support, along with the Home Builders Association of Central Arizona. Kaiser told the Arizona Mirror that the housing crisis in this state requires immediate action, as the Arizona Department of Housing estimates that 270,000 homes are needed to meet the demand. You heard me right, 270,000 homes. Uh, I'll read a quote from Kaiser. Quote, Every day we delay those 270,000 homes, the problem gets bigger, end quote. This is just one proposal to address the housing crisis in Arizona. And it is interesting and reminiscent of zoning reforms in states like California, funny enough, where last year Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill that allows single-family homes to be transformed into a property with four homes, so in other words, up to a quadplex would be allowed, according to Governing Magazine. We will have to see what else is proposed and how this bill changes as it makes its way through the legislature. So to the panel, is the rent too damn high? And what do you all think about this bill? The rent is absolutely too high. Um, obviously, we saw many people moving to Phoenix for one of the biggest reasons, the low rent prices, the weather. Um, just basically... Um, you saw reports from all over media chains like CNBC about how Phoenix is the new booming city and a lot of like tech businesses are also moving here. Um, just like Austin, of course, it's booming. But with that comes increasing rent prices and it's ridiculous how much a studio apartment cost or even a two bedroom, for example. It's absolutely ridiculous and um, it definitely needs to change the rent needs because again, as you said, Gideon, wages are not going up, but the rent is. So honestly, yeah, we are seeing that the rent is increasing here as well as other places too. It's just not Phoenix. It's other places too, but it is absolutely ridiculous of what some apartment complexes are charging for rent. Mm -hmm. Like there is no way something needs to be that overpriced and i'm just using a generalization right. yes i do think rent is way too high no I, I think you're right and you know part of the problem is is that when supply is as low as it is people can get away with charging that much they're charging what it is worth yeah uh, and uh, when you have scarcity like that you're gonna have high prices and to answer kirsten's previous question yes what are the odds of it passing i can't tell you i honestly can't really now, the trouble is that this bill is guaranteed to attract bipartisan support, and it is also guaranteed to attract bipartisan opposition. Uh, one of the troubles, uh, I can tell you, uh, a lot of similar bills that have been introduced in, like, uh, California, and by the way, a lot of the, the bills that have been introduced in other states have been a lot more modest than this. This is probably the furthest I have seen a zoning reform bill go ever. Uh, it does seem like there are some, I've seen some Republicans who seem amenable to the, at least the principles of it, uh, um, and some Democrats who seem amenable to the principles of it too. 
Now, the exact bill, we'll find out as it goes through the legislative process, just how deep is the opposition? Uh, I mean, right now, the in both houses, the legislature is a one-seat Republican majority, so you need at least leadership in the Republican Party, in the legislature, to be supportive of it, and enough people in the majority caucus, and they're definitely going to get some Democratic votes. Uh, it does seem like a lot of Democrats, the biggest thing that I've seen floating around that some Democrats aren't happy about is one of the big issues here is that uh, what big issue for a long time has been the state seizing control of local affairs through preemption laws like this. And it's normally targeted at liberal towns. Like an infamous example from a few years ago is that Bisbee, a very liberal town not too far from the border, actually, in southeastern Arizona, uh, passed a plastic bag ban. Then a state lawmaker got a bill rammed through the legislature passing a uh, ban on plastic bag bans. That's actually illegal in the state now. Oh, oh, wow. So, yeah, some Democrats are leery of preemption laws. Uh, so that could be a problem. My personal opinion on the matter, if you're, if anyone's wondering, is I'm actually very supportive of taking away the power of cities to do this kind uh, to do zoning review. Uh, I think it has clearly been a failure. Cities like I do not trust cities like Scottsdale, who have shown a contempt of anybody who is not, you know, of their demographic being rich white people. Um, I mean, that is the truth. That I is, mean, uh, like, they want to keep, it's like, it allows cities like Scottsdale to be segregated enclaves. Right. And I and think that should be, I know, I, I honestly think it is right and just for the state to take over that power. For for those just listening, Gideon followed up and clarified because I laughed a little. Uh, and the reason that I laughed a little bit is because you don't even have to really specify what kind of demographic you're talking about when you say the demographic of Scottsdale, because everybody just sort of knows. Yeah, everyone knows that, but I just like to be clear on radio. Right. And I think the main thing that really, I think, has drawn this bipartisan support for this particular legislation, in my opinion, is just the fact that I think it's it's a very simple problem with a not so simple solution necessarily, but maybe a very clear one in terms of the rent is too damn high, wages have not gone up, and it's not as if the rent had only gone up 2% or 5%. It went up over a quarter, almost a third of the price. And I mean, no matter how hard you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, or no matter how hard you or how much you plan um, and take care of your finances, and no matter how much you've saved up for a rainy day, almost nobody is going to be prepared for that significant of a like that significant of a hike. So I'm really glad to see this get that support. Um, I can only hope that it will have a fighting chance at the very least, because it really does sound like anything could happen here. Oh, yeah. No, this is one of those. There's a lot of bills when they get introduced. You know who's going to support it. You know who's going to oppose it. This is one of those ones. In fact, uh, both Kaiser and Chavez, when uh, introducing it at a press conference earlier in the week, said it would be a caucus cutter, as in it is going to divide both of their caucuses right down the middle. Uh, and we'll find out, you know, if, if there's a majority to even get it. Because once again, the first test is, can it even pass a committee? It's been assigned right. to three committees. It's been assigned to uh, commerce, appropriations, and rules. Rules is standard that they do that to every bill for those of you who aren't familiar. So, so just two extra committees than normal, I guess? One extra than normal. But it, it, it fits that it's assigned to both appropriations and commerce because right. it does deal with finances at the end with the housing trust infusion right so yeah hey gideon when do those committees make that decision uh i have i can quickly check it should <clears throat> i they've been assigned but i don't think uh last i checked they were not scheduled because this bill was only introduced this week oh this so it's probably too early for them to have scheduled anything and if they have i'll be really surprised because yeah. that is moving lightning speed for yes. any kind of bureaucracy. Yeah, yeah it's probably going to be a, a hot minute before it gets like a day. In, uh, and I mean, it depends on who the chairs are. I, right. I'm not exactly sure who the chairs are of those committees. Um, but 
We don't expect you to know everything. No, no. <laughs> you come close a lot of the time, but... <laughs> oh, oh. You, you flatter me too much, Kirsten. But yeah, I do think that this is a very interesting bill, and it's not the solution. It's not the be-all, end-all of, you know, of a This will completely policy. solve the problem. But it is a very firm step in the right direction, and I believe it it is worthy of... Curious inspection, and also, I hope the committees in their process don't just kill it and actually, you know, sand off the rough edges like any other bill. Like, like There's some issues with some of the ways it's phrases and whatever, and I guess we will see as they go through the committees some of the, hopefully they shave off some of the rougher edges on the bill and it actually becomes a really neat thing, because I think the core of the bill, the zoning preemption, is the right thing to do. The housing, the fact is we have an actual housing supply crisis, and this would go a long way toward solving it. I know some housing advocates are skeptical of that, uh, but, you know, if we can't even start to tackle the problem, if we're not even tackling, if we're doing everything we are currently doing to restrict supply. So I'm interested to see how this goes. Anyone have anything else to say on this? Uh, if not, I'll hand it off to John for his story. Thank you, Gideon. When the United States withdrew forces from Afghanistan after two decades, after what the country saw as pressing progress, the Taliban started to slowly take back over. The conservative group took over women's education and forced women out of the workplace and from getting an education. But now, more than ever, women are pushing back and demanding freedoms. PBS's new, PBS NewsHour's Jane Ferguson and videographer Eric O'Connor share an incredible nine-minute video on this issue in which I'm inspired to tell part of a story on this show. One woman who Ferguson interviewed, um, Story Amdi, works for Women for Women International. Amdi said, The Taliban's forces pushing women out of education and work have drastically impacted the current economy. And through one woman's quote, they said, quote, they don't have any future. We cannot afford private education. I wanted them to go to university and get a job. We had a lot of hopes, but they all vanished. So in August of 2021, the U.S. officially withdrew troops from Afghanistan. And now more than ever, the Taliban is back trying to get women out of education and out of getting jobs in the workplace. But women are slowly pushing back to that and demanding that they get an education and have their freedoms to work. Um, I watched the report yesterday on my internship on PBS NewsHour, and I thought for Jane Ferguson and Eric O'Connor did such a good job at telling these women's stories. Multiple women were interviewed. Um, they went on scene with multiple women. Um, it was a very dangerous story, but they got it done. Truly, I think it's such an inspiring story. And also this reminds me of um, after reading Malala's book too, her story was very inspiring. Mm. Um, so I wanted to get the panel's thoughts on this. Um, what do you think about this whole particular situation on women's education and getting back into the workplace and the Taliban's involvement in all of this? It's just a darn tragedy. No, it's horrible um, that the women in Afghanistan have to go through this because the Taliban is, I think the only way I can describe them, the single most reactionary force I've ever seen, just in terms of the way they look at the world is retrograde in a way I didn't think was humanly possible until I found, you know, until I started understanding the Taliban. So anyway, it, it's, it, I'm, glad that the women in Afghanistan are pushing back it you know and I know some people have said in the kind of the response to the American withdrawal since then yeah especially when it was still you know the issue of the week a few months ago um and everyone was paying attention to Afghanistan for the first time in who knows how long uh, because Americans have the honestly have the uh, the average American has the uh, kind of a attention span of a fruit fly when it comes to a, a lot of important issues, especially if they're not happening in the United States. That's not an, in, that, I don't mean that to be insulting, but that is unfortunately just the truth. Uh, 
so I know some have said, you know, the the you know America shouldn't have withdrawn. We should have stayed there, have protected. It's like it wasn't gonna work. I think you can hold two truths, like two things can be true at the exact same time. The American occupation was not sustainable. There was just no way on earth the United States was gonna be able to do it. And also, what's happened to Afghan the woman in Afghanistan is a darn shame. It it's just horrible. It's really sad. And uh you know, I I don't know what to say except that I wish them all the best. There's not much I feel that we as citizens can really do, which makes me really, really sad. But I, I really hope that they are able to push back, like you said, and someday achieve some sort of peace because, you know... We, we talk about feminism and things a lot here in the States. And I think in a lot of those conversations, we leave out women like the women in Afghanistan, like women all over the world who are still experiencing these very extreme, nightmarish even, levels of misogyny. And, you know, that's not to say that there aren't real significant issues here in the United States. And that's certainly not to say anything negative about the religion of Islam, because it's important to remember, I think, that the people who are enforcing that extreme misogyny are, are also extreme extremists in the religious sense. And so I want to make that very clear when talking about this, but I do really, really hope that one day, like I said, they will achieve a level of peace where they can live the way that they want to live. Yeah, hats off to the woman of Afghanistan for fighting back. That takes a lot of courage and is really difficult yeah. to do. Um, as well as the journalists who are reporting on this story. Um, I don't remember the exact names you said of the journalist earlier. Yeah, uh, Jane Ferguson and Eric O'Connor. But both of them deserve a lot of praise, too, because it can be really hard to tell stories, especially stories that are big risks and potentially dangerous like these ones. And as Kirsty was saying, there's not much we can do to help, but just raising awareness, telling stories, mm -hmm. making sure people know what's going on, that, that is a way to help. If you're looking for a way to help, just start talking about it. Inform. Don't, don't say anything stupid. Don't say anything that's not going to help the cause. But if you say stuff and you spread the news, that is a way to help. Yeah. Um, yeah. And with that, I, I wanted to thank Jane Ferguson and Eric O'Connor for this incredible story and making us aware of this critical issue in our world. And to check out more of the reporting of Jane and Eric's report, you can visit pbs.org. Um, and we are going to take a quick break. I'm guessing that's what Gideon is telling me to do. Yes, he is. <laughs> All right. We're taking a quick break. We'll be right back on The Review Squared. All right, all right, all right. We are so glad that you are still listening to The Review Squared here on Blaze Radio on blazeradioonline.com. I am joined by my lovely co-panelists and producer here in the studio. We have Gideon Karayuki, John Brown, Haley Smilo, and myself, Kirsten Dorman, ready to bring you another true crime-related story this week. So let's jump right into it, honestly. So, unfortunately, it's really no secret that the true crime genre has a penchant for exploitation. Whether it's mishandling the de delicate subject matter or simply using stories of real pain and suffering for profit or even mispronouncing simple words really badly because you can't read correctly on air. If you enter the phrase exploitation in true crime into just about any search engine, dozens of results will pop up. It's become a widely discussed and debated topic. Many people have been pointing the finger at Dead Asleep, a documentary that was recently released on Hulu lately. The documentary's main focus is the convicted killer in this case, who stabbed his friend and roommate to death. 
Randy Herman Jr. stabbed the victim more than 20 times, but says he doesn't remember anything about it because he was sleepwalking. One glaring issue with the documentary that many, including the victim's family, actually, have pointed out is that the 21-year-old Brooke Herman, she wasn't given any attention, really, aside from her role as a victim in the documentary. Brooke graduated from college in 2016, and she moved to Pennsylvania for a little while after graduation to be with her boyfriend at the time, who she had been maintaining a long-distance relationship with. But then she ended up relocating to West Palm Beach, Florida in July of 2016. Her sister Jordan was already living there, and Jordan was reportedly, or sorry, Brooke was ready for a change. So it really just made sense to make the move. She's young. She's wanting to experience life. And I think a lot of people, especially those of us here at ASU who have moved away from home a few states, we really can relate, I think, to that feeling, right, of just you want to get out of your home state, you want to see something new, live somewhere different. And so the sisters also had a longtime friend who they had met in middle school. His name was Randy. He had reportedly been going through a hard time with life just in general, and he needed a change of scenery. So the sisters, they encouraged him to come down to West Palm Beach, live with them. It was going to be so fun. And at first, it really was. The three of them hung out constantly. They had family dinners and game nights, as Jordan said. Um, she told YouTuber Kendall Ray that they began meeting new people and making new friends eventually, as you sort of do once you've settled into a new place long enough. And naturally, they just began hanging out less. The relationship between Brooke and her boyfriend, Brian, was getting more serious as time went on. They were still doing the long distance thing, good for them. <laughs> the end result of that though, was that Brooklyn really, really wanted to move back in with him. And so she eventually made plans to move up to New York to go live with him, which was where he was at the time. And she was really excited about this because again, it was another really exciting kind of change of scenery, awesome. So Jordan and Randy ended up remaining roommates after Brooke's departure, but things were reportedly a lot different than when they moved in together at first and now that Brooke was gone. So it wasn't toxic, it was just different and sort of distant, according to Kendall Ray, who she had actually interviewed a lot of Brooke's family members about this, which I think was a really, really nice insight to have on the case. So... Brooke decided to visit West Palm Beach in March of 2017 after four months of living with her boyfriend in Buffalo, New York. On the last full day of this trip, she went to the beach with Randy and I believe another friend, but I'm sorry, I don't have the exact detail on that. Regardless, they went to the beach, they drank a little champagne, they had some other things to drink, reportedly. Again, details are a little bit fuzzy on what exactly they had been doing that day, but the point being, they hung out, they drank a little, but Randy actually drank a lot. According to a friend, Brooke didn't sleep at the house as she had planned to because she told him that Randy was being really belligerent and displaying some upsetting and honestly straight-up disturbing behavior. So the friend came and picked her up, and he even said that it was really, really likely that Randy didn't even remember him coming to pick Brooke up because he was that drunk. Regardless, Randy was then majorly hungover the next morning, predictably, when Brooke came back to the house to get a t-shirt she wanted to make sure that she brought back with her to New York. And so he says that he remembers hugging Brooke goodbye. Um, he helped her find the shirt. And then he says he watched her leave as he fell back asleep in his own room. Then he goes on not to dispute that he was the one holding the knife. He does not dispute standing over Brooke's body. And he does not dispute being the person who killed her at the end of the day. He was actually the person who called 911. And in a report, he told deputies that um, or it, he told deputies on the scene, rather, that there were only two people in the house, and so he must have done it. I'm paraphrasing there, but 
he all but admitted it. The thing that he does dispute, though, is that he had any memory of committing the murder beyond what we've just gone over. And so his mother reportedly told detectives that her son had sleepwalking episodes, and this became a significant part of the defense. This became a main focus, really, of the Netflix documentary from what I've like read and been told. I personally have not watched it. I will not be watching it because the victim's family is saying that it's it's not representative of Brooke, and they essentially are not for the the result that came out of that documentary. So I personally am not going to watch it. <clears throat> but some of you listening in the studio may be feeling a little bit of deja vu right now. And some of you in the studio may be thinking, Kirsten, haven't you brought us this story before? <laughs> and I can't blame you because that's because you're remembering our show on January 29th of 2021. So like, almost a year ago, a little over a year ago, but that was actually a totally different case where we went over a sleepwalking case from right here in Arizona, not West Palm Beach. So you can and should go back and listen to that episode if you have the time, but for now, here's a brief summary of what happened here and we'll circle back to the West Palm Beach case. So on January 17th, 1997, Scott Fowler had finished preparing a lesson for the Mormon religious education class that he taught. He also then went outside and fixed an issue with the pool at his house. And then when he came back in, he said he saw his wife, uh, Yarmila, asleep on the couch and he kissed her goodnight before going up to bed. Then he says the next thing he knew, he was standing at the top of the stairs in the house with a police officer pointing a gun at him. Yamila's body, Yarmila's body, excuse me, was found later floating in the pool, and it was a really, this was a really sad one. Um, discourse absolutely enveloped the case. Two of the world's leading sleep experts at the time testified at the trial, and they said it was possible for Fowler to have been sleepwalking during the murder, but they did admit that it was really unusual for someone to do as many specific and complex actions as he would have had to do to uh, carry out the murder. A sleep disorders expert at the University of Arizona right here uh, in, well, not right here in Tucson, we're in Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. <laughs> they could uh, have geography? been at, like, the medical building. Yeah, right? I mean, at the time they didn't, the medical school wasn't in Phoenix. That's relatively new. Yeah, regardless, uh, geography, not my thing. This, however, <laughs> I do find interesting. Um, so, that sleep disorders expert from the U of A told the AP that violence during sleep is actually extremely rare. And this is even despite there being documented cases of sleepwalkers who have walked out of upper story windows, threw their children out of windows, and drove cars. So that's really significant because I think there's that distinction. And again, I'm not the expert. Absolutely not. But to me, as like a layperson, this distinguishes you can do complex actions like the ones I just listed, but a complex violent action and then the cover-up of that action, like we saw in the crime with Fallader here, that takes a lot of brain power and you really more than likely would not continue to sleepwalk during that. So regardless, in the case of Randy Herman Jr., a 12 jury, a 12 jury person... <laughs> <laughs> a 12-person jury found him guilty in 2019 of first-degree murder, and he, I believe, is still in prison to this day. He has requested, I believe, a new trial, A new trial, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Yeah, that was a little tough to, I think, verify more details on just because that is a newer development along with the release of the documentary on Hulu, but... I think really what I want to impress upon you all with this story is first, I think it's really strange that there were two honestly very similar in like the broad strokes of the case, but very different in terms of Brooke and Randy did not have any kind of romantic involvement with one another. 
Um, and Falader and his wife obviously did. They had children together. Um, and outside of details like that, these two cases really struck me as similar. But this other one from 2017 got a lot more coverage. And now that the documentary has come out and Brooke's family has said that it's pretty misrepresentative of her and what happened to her, it, it really, it strikes a chord with me personally because we have seen a lot more families come out these days when it comes to coverage of true crime and especially of murder cases and speak up and advocate for their loved ones, which has been a positive thing. The thing that I, I do find disappointing is that they are still seemingly not as heard by these documentary makers, which there's not much to say there from at least my perspective, aside from do better. It's awful to exploit someone's pain in that way, and especially to exploit it for the purpose of making money, um, as many of these documentary and series makers do. And so hit dogs holler if you are feeling at all offended by what I just said. Know that it's probably about you. But I'll pass that off to the panel now. Thank you guys for listening. I just, I think it was interesting. I'm looking up this case as you were talking about it, Kirsten. Um, his defense of sleepwalking. And I thought it was interesting what that UA expert said about sleepwalking. Um, I don't know. It's just very interesting. I don't think I could believe this whole sleepwalking thing. I just, I don't know. It's just... Like, after, because personally, I'm a big true crime person myself, and hearing some things that people on the defense say is very mind-blowing and something I would have never thought about in a million years. And according to the Palm Beach Post, the man who was con convicted of Randy of killing Brooke Preston after claiming he was sleepwalking is seeking a new trial. So it will be interesting to see how this um, goes along. Um, and I'm just curious what everyone else thinks about the whole sleepwalking defense. Do you guys buy it? What What's the... I personally use the Falader case as sort of a guide on this, just because it was so long ago, and they were really, really hotly debating this, uh, whether or not it was possible to do something like that and be sleepwalking at the same time. And I feel that it really isn't, in my opinion. I am someone who has actually experienced sleepwalking episodes, not severe ones, but I have experienced them. And I don't think, I, I mean, I couldn't even do a task as complex as turning a doorknob when I was sleepwalking. I would get stuck in rooms a lot. Right. Oh, <laughs> um, my. And so personally, I really, really doubt it. I mean, I, I don't know what to say. I, I've seen people like, no, I'm not kidding seeing people do some crazy stuff sleepwalking. So in high school, I was at a conference. I'm not going to say which one because uh, some people listening might know exactly which one I'm talking about. Uh, anonymity. Yeah, anonymity. Let's have it. Um, so I was at a conference in high school. We're staying at a hotel. And we were a few floors up uh, in this hotel. And one of the people I was roomed with, there were three of us in that room, and one of the people we were roomed with uh, went, uh, was sleepwalking. He managed to leave the room, go down the elevator, and end up in the lobby. Nice. Uh, yeah, wow. it, it's, yeah, it was actually a chaperone downstairs who was like, oh boy, this kid's down here. Uh, yeah. You had to come back and then, it, anyways. He's a much more confident sleepwalker than me. And, you know, I also wonder, am I just an incompetent sleepwalker? Or, because there is also that lady on TikTok, I don't know if you've seen her, where she has security cameras set up in her house because she sleepwalks so often and she will get food out of the fridge and throw it on the lawn <laughs> um, and do all kinds of wacky stuff. So, I mean, now that you bring that up, I'm thinking I could see why it's like gray in some people's minds. But for me, it's it's pretty clear. I think regardless, it's it's one thing to go down an elevator while you're sleepwalking. It's a whole other thing. Um, to commit a murder. Oh, absolutely. I think it is. I just, 
I'm not I'm not 121% sure if it's outside the possibilities, but it seems so incredibly unlikely to me. Right. Like a brutal murderer is just uh maybe a one step too far on the Now injuring somebody I think is very likely. It's possible, but well, I think it's possible, I should say. I shouldn't say that with any kind of authority because I don't have any, but yeah. And I will say to sort of round us out here uh, before I pass it off to Haley, the main issue that Brooke's family took with this documentary, and I want to make sure we don't make the same mistake here on the show, was the lack of focus on Brooke. She was, by all accounts of the people that knew her and were close to her, wonderful. She was the kind of person where I'm sure I would have loved to be her friend, honestly, uh, from hearing her family and her loved ones tell stories about her. And so I really highly recommend going and finding the Kendall Ray video about her because, like I said, the family is featured in that video and they finally get to have a voice there. So definitely go check that out. Haley, any thoughts on this before we yeah, wrap it up? Yeah, I was like, I don't on? even get to say anything. I no. guess I'll cut into my segment. Um, <laughs> so sorry. Hulu, Netflix, whoever else, stop. Please, literally. I feel like a broken record every time we talk about this, but stop. Just tell the stories of the people. We don't need to glorify murder in any type or not murder, sleepwalking complications. I don't know. We don't have to do that. Story should be about the victim. It should be about the families, not the murder, not the death, not the trial. Those just aren't as important in reality. So, like, please stop Hulu and Netflix and whoever else is making these documentaries. All good points. I second that, Haley. Yeah, so I'll officially pass it off to you now. I've passed it off to you for your opinion. And now let's pass it off to you for your story to round us out for the night. Okay, story time. So, the Olympics are happening. In case you didn't know that, and I bet a fair share of you listeners didn't know that. But I don't blame you. There's a handful of reasons why you might not have known, but we'll get into that in just a second. First, I want to do a quick Olympic breakdown with five key facts. Number one, the Olympics started this morning and it's going until February 20th. Two, it's being hosted in Beijing. Three, over 3,000 Olympians are competing. And of those 3,000 Olympians, 224 of them are American. There's 109 different events happening, and some of the most notable ones are hockey, figure skating, snowboarding, luge, and my personal favorite, bobsleigh. Finally, following along with the Olympics is easier to do than ever. If you want coverage, just Google the word Olympics in any source in the world that you want to read. We'll have something if you want to look for it on Twitter or Instagram. Really easy to do. If you want to watch a live event, that's a bit harder. There's a significant time difference, especially here in Arizona. But just click on to NBC on your TV and you'll be good to go. You can watch it. So let's get into the first reason why the Olympics is probably something you didn't know was happening. There's a ton of other sports going on right now. Whether it's at the college level with basketball, wrestling, or baseball and softball starting up soon. The NHL, the All-Star Game is going on tomorrow. The Super Bowl happening in just a, couple, in just a week or so here. And the Daytona 500 happening on the last day of the Olympics or February 20th. There's a bunch of other sports going on, so it's hard to follow there. Secondly, obviously COVID is still a relevant thing. More than ever in Beijing, they have a zero COVID tolerance. And that's affecting the Olympians and the reporters a lot. When you land there, you have to be given this 83-page rule book that tells you what you can do, what you can't do, all sorts of different things. But before even getting to Beijing, you get on this airplane that was provided by Beijing and the IOC so that you are not in contact with any other people. Then you get there, you get off the plane, and you're met with a bunch of people in hazmat suits who COVID disinfect your luggage and take tests. And then you're moved into the COVID bubble, which is a 40-mile closed loop that has conference rooms in it, hotels, and all the venues. And if something happens in that COVID bubble, like an emergency and different Chinese citizens see that, they're told not to go into that bubble. They can get in trouble. They can get arrested. They can get fined for helping people and going into that bubble. So this is a very serious people in the bubble, stay in the bubble, everyone else. No, you can't do that. No one is allowed to leave the bubble unless they are going to the airport. They must stay inside the bubble. And before going home, everyone has to quarantine there for 21 days, whether they were COVID positive or COVID negative. So that's kind of insane. 
but it is going to potentially keep down the COVID numbers. If you want to read more about that, a CNN journalist named Selena Wang reported all about her experience headed over to Beijing and how it's going right now. The second reason you might not know about this is advertising. And that ties into something a little bit more complicated. A lot of American companies are scared or don't want to advertise what's going on right now for a fair reason. It makes a lot of sense. China's having human rights violation issues. So a lot of American companies don't want to advertise that. Speaking of that, the United States, India, the UK, Australia, China, Kosovo, Lithuania, Belgium, Denmark, and Estonia are all boycotting the Olympics. No, the athletes aren't. They're competing, but the diplomats are. None of them are attending the Olympic events nor the start of the Olympic Games. On top of that, a lot of other European leaders like Sweden, Norway, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, they're not boycotting the Olympics, but they're also not going citing COVID as an issue here. There are some countries that go. Vladimir Putin from Russia went over there. He was at the opening ceremony, fell asleep during Ukraine's walkout, ironically. Oh, no. And uh, that's trending on Twitter. Oh, um, no. And him and the leader of China are having some talks. Um, not the best for America in this situation. If you want to go look that up, I'm not the right person to talk about that. But that could be potentially problematic. Where is Ethan when you need him? Yeah, I was like, come on, Ethan, today. But no, it's okay. Then another problem happening is China had Uyghurs, who are a Muslim minority of the country, hold the Olympic torch, basically saying to America, hey, we're not discriminatory. We don't have these racist problems. Um, this wasn't the way to show that, China. This just wasn't the way to show the Western world what's happening. A lot of people are calling these games the human rights violation games now instead of the Olympic games, which is fair, um, but obviously just not the name of it. According to the Associated Press, China's whole idea is that this opening ceremony showed the power of the country and showed that it's a world power, but the Western nations looked at it as how oppressive China has become over time. In comparison to the 2008 Olympics, the summer games, when everyone was like, yay, China, Good job, you get to host an Olympic Games. So that's some of the chaos that's going on over there politically. And the IOC was like, hey, this event can't be political. Well, IOC, when a bunch of countries come together, it's innately going to be political. Yeah, politics tend to happen. <laughs> yeah, they, they, you know, they're kind of relevant. So as I said before, that kind of goes into advertising because no company is going to want to have to deal with all those problems. Again, I don't really blame them. Last off, we have the FBI and other American companies telling American athletes, American reporters in different global Western countries not to bring their own phones into China in worries of being tracked and traced. So a lot of people are bringing secondary phones in efforts to not have that happen to them. So as you can see, this Olympic Games kind of has a weird scenario around it, but there's also a lot of great Olympians competing in it like Sean White, and we'll see what happens. We'll see who wins medals. I'll keep you guys updated. But rest of the panel, what are you guys thinking about all this? Well, this is a mess. Uh, transparently so. Yeah. I mean, you ha here you have an Olympics being held in Beijing in 2022 uh, with everything going on and the way it's going on. I mean, I think just the thing that stood out to me, Haley, and what you were talking about on the on the more international politics side of this olympics was the having a, a yeager person light the torch it's like uh, uh are we gonna talk about those uh re-education centers uh yeah the way i got i couldn't even help it i gasped out loud when when you said that Haley, because the audacity yeah the it's... audacity no imagine for those of you listening at home for imagine somebody saying, I have black friends as a defense for racism, except it's not I have black friends, it's we have Yeagers in prominent positions of society, uh, and you're also... We're definitely uh, not committing human rights violations against them. Yeah. If we were, why would we let them light the Olympic torch? That's what that says to me. Yeah, it's uh, pretty Yuck. horrifying uh, of a thing for them to do, and... I think one of the things you also said, too, on this is less celebratory than the 2008 Olympics, 
and that China is growing increasingly repressive, it, I mean, it does seem like that is the di direction they're moving toward, because by 2008, the direction they had been moving toward for a while was towards sort of a more openness, and mm -hmm. it seems like things are moving back. The pendulum has finally swung in the other direction. Absolutely. But, but anyways, to stay on the sports thing, <laughs> I do want to make a comment on the sports thing, um, because that is, you know, your segment, actually. I was going to take us out of sports, but no, go for it. Continue. Ah, uh, sorry. <laughs> no, but anyways, I do want to comment on that. You know, it's like I, I am looking forward all the same, you know, despite the horrible conditions uh, yeah. of all this to all the cool winter sports. And I do wish... Uh, our American athletes all the best. Yes, I'm actually personally very excited um, for ice skating in particular. I love figure skating and rhythm skating in, in general. I think it's, I, I love it. It's such a fun sport to watch. Um, Nathan Chen, who is our American kind of representative out there, he's an American figure skater. He had his highest score of the season this morning. Yeah, <laughs> go Nathan. Um, yeah, so you have at least one person here on the Review Squared polling for you. Nathan Chen, if you ever hear this, just know I'm a big fan. You have two people. You have two people rooting for you, Nathan. <laughs> I think you've got all four of us. Yes. Um, oh my gosh, he has all four of us. I'll even add Ethan. Do next, it. You've got all five of yeah, us. <laughs> next week, you'll see the five of us actually in Beijing holding up a sign that says, Go, Ethan, we love you. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll quarantine for 21 days straight yes. from Beijing. Go Ethan. Do you, wait, did you say Nathan or Ethan? I so, thought I said Nathan. Said no, Ethan, see, but meant Nathan, I'm so, so it's, sorry. it's okay. <laughs> Nathan, Nathan, if you ever listen to this, forgive me, please. <laughs> On the athletes front, we've also got two Arizonans competing in the Olympic Games. One's a hockey player. One is also a figure skater. Woo! So there's some Arizonan angles for you. Um... Going back to some of the more political issues, a lot of people are comparing it to the 2008 games, especially the opening ceremonies, where it was like these huge drum lines and all that sort of stuff. So if you want to read more about that, go for it. It's pretty interesting. Anywho, thank you for listening. We appreciate it so much. It was great having your listenership. And if you were listening online, we appreciate you just as much. If you feel like giving us a follow at the Review Squared on Twitter, we'd really appreciate it. I think that's our Instagram handle too. No, it's yeah, it's Review Squared. Review okay. underscore score. Those are our squared. handles. I really should know them by we now. We say them every but week. But I continue to just not know them. Um, <laughs> so if it makes any of you feel better for not knowing things, me too. Um, we don't know anybody's name. We don't know our social media handles yep we don't know things but we we try <laughs> we're every friday at seven o'clock mountain standard time on blaze radio i've been Haley smilo for the rest of the panel thanks so much for listening we'll see you guys next time song at the start of the episode is dedicated to the press by betty davis and the music you hear is by springtime